flying fuck is going on in the world of aviation a huge welcome from what the flying fuck the hush kit aviation podcast welcome you sorrow shrimps you handley page gugnunks you elliptical reciprocal fixed pitch antarctic babies you balanca pacemakers you b36 peacemakers you dr christmas plane making fakers again you martin bakers you shock diamond dogs boeing super frogs please remove the sticky honey from your helmet's visor as i am your supervisor joe coles and this is the hush kit podcast what the flying fuck Today we've got a very special guest to talk about a very serious subject. We've got Guy Plopsky, who's going to be talking about the application of Russian air power in the ongoing invasion attempt of Ukraine. So, Guy, thank you very much for um, being with us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me on the show. My pleasure. Um, I'm going to jump straight in. Um, which Russian aerospace forces combat aircraft have been used in this campaign? Uh, which have been most active? And what have they been doing? So um, with respect to Russian Aerospace Forces, Army Aviation, Army Aviation, it's uh, helicopters, rotary wing aircraft. So we've seen a lot of attack helicopters being employed, uh, Mi-24, Mi-35Ms, Mi-28Ns, and Ka-52s. The Ka-52s in particular appear to be uh, among the most active types, okay, they're from what we can see from videos and interviews with uh, pilots and they're flying uh, various missions including uh, close air support air interdiction armed escort and uh, they're also doing armed reconnaissance and they typically operate in in flights of two that's uh, what it seems like from the footage and um, uh, as for the russian aerospace forces operational tactical aviation so su-25s they've been active since very early on actually in the beginning in the first uh, five days or so after the opening wave of attacks uh, there's been very little activity of russian tactical fixed-wing aircraft but the su-25s were already spotted there of course there is probably a lot going on that doesn't get captured on film that we don't know but based on what we can see su-25s were active earlier on and they still are active and uh it seems like the Russians are also operating the Su-25SM and the SM-3 variants. Uh, the SM-3 is the most capable one. And they too, they appear to be doing uh, CAS, air, inter- air interdiction, armed reconnaissance, and some other aircraft that we've seen uh, being employed um, include uh, Su-35Ss. So we know those are being used for seed missions and they're probably flying various counter air, other counter air missions as well. We should explain by SEAD, you mean the suppression of air defenses? Yeah, that's right. Suppression of enemy air defense. Right? And uh, they're also possibly doing other missions like air interdiction. And uh, we're also seeing Su-34s being used. Um, they're also likely doing air interdiction and other missions, for example, uh, counter air uh, missions against uh, targets on the ground and including SEAD. Uh, and uh, they're also maybe being used to attack uh, critical infrastructure assets. Now, as for uh, the Russian Aerospace Forces long range aviation, I still haven't come across any footage 
uh, documenting their use, but they've, they're no doubt being used uh, most likely 295 MS and maybe also 2160 bombers being used to launch cruise missiles from Russian airspace uh, against uh, both military and non-military targets in in uh, in Ukraine. I imagine maybe military targets would include uh, uh, counter air targets on the ground, okay, and uh, also possibly against critical infrastructure assets. And we've also seen uh, aerospace forces using their unmanned combat aerial vehicles, okay, UCAVs. We've seen them use the four post R and the more capable uh, in Hoditz uh, um, unmanned aerial, armed un unmanned aerial systems. Uh, they too appear to be more active now than they were earlier on in the war, and they appear to be used for uh, air interdiction and uh, armed reconnaissance. And the Russians said they've, uh, you know, there have been reports saying Russia used hypersonic weapons, not clear which and whether they were indeed used, but if yes, it's possible they'd they used uh, the Kinjal system maybe to test it out under real combat conditions against certain targets. In most cases, given that their ground-based Iskander M systems have the range to reach uh, many targets, it would be much more cost-effective to use those, but it's possible they wanted to test out the Kinjal under real combat conditions. And I guess historically, there's been a, a, a culture in Russia of testing military hardware in combat situations perhaps earlier than equivalent western systems would be tested for example the su-25 in afghanistan or um the probably the forger as well in afghanistan the yak-38 as well so uh, if hypersonic missiles were used do you think this would follow in the tradition that Russia tends to go for combat evaluations earlier than Western equivalents. Do you think there's any truth to that? Uh, I think there they do. They tend to do that with a lot of systems. Yes, we've seen that in 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 Syria, for example, uh, also where they tested out four post R and the Inhoditz armed unmanned aerial systems. They've tested out helicopters. Uh, they tested out Su, their Su fifty seven, for example and uh, various other also weapons and, and aircraft. Again, looking at the differences between how Russian air power is employed compared to the West, it appears that they uh, have less emphasis on smart munitions, on precision strike. Um, in this campaign, do you, do you think uh, that the same thing is that is the same thing is happening that Russia is using a smaller percentage of smart munitions than the West would do in, in an equivalent campaign. I think definitely, and I think we're likely to see more and more use of uh, unguided munitions as the war goes on. I mean, Ukraine, in, ter in terms of the number of missiles, ground, sea, and air, and air launch that Russia employed, it's the total number, it, it's unprecedented for the Russian military. Uh, but it's operational tactical aviation and army aviation, you know, they appear to be predominantly using unguided munitions and this trend is uh, likely to continue. And historically also that's been the case, you know, just to give uh, your listeners some numbers, uh, reportedly during the first Chechen war, only 3% of all munitions employed by Russian aircraft were guided. During the second Chechen war, it was 1.5. And during the 2008 Russo-Georgian war, 
it was only 0.5%. Now, we don't have uh, figures for Syria and for Ukraine, and probably because the Russian defense ministry, you know, doesn't want to release these figures, it's not favorable for them because uh, it's uh, also in Syria, for example, likely in the single digits, possibly low single, likely low single digits. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's nowhere near on the level of uh, Western air forces, which today employ pretty much exclusively precision guided weapons. Do you think it's more that precision weapons are expensive or technologically difficult or more that there's less consideration for potential civilian casualties? Uh, it's a combination of, of factors in my view. So first of all, uh, let's talk about Syria. When, when Russia intervened in Syria in September 2015, a lot of uh, the more modern precision guided munitions were available in very limited numbers. And uh, yes, also Russia is not concerned about collateral damage and even deliberately targets civilian uh, targets. And also um, they, in, in Syria, they had the luxury of uh, bombing from, from medium altitudes with unguided bombs. Of course, when you do that with unguided bombs, that comes at the expense of, you know, low uh, bombing accuracy and precision, but, and can increase significantly the need for redundant targeting. But, uh, you know, they, that was good enough for them, I guess. And uh, remember, Syria is not an existential war for them. So while they have significantly increased their stockpiles of precision guided weapons, including more modern precision guided weapons, there are no reliable figures. Uh, but they have been introducing new weapons over the years and taking more deliveries of uh, existing types. Um, their production capacity is likely not very high, and so they cannot replenish their stockpiles as fast. And so unless it's an existential war, they're likely quite reluctant to employ them. They employ them very selectively. I think if they're God forbid, was a you know a major war against NATO or something like that. We would see Russia employ more precision guided weapons, but uh, both in Ukraine as well, which is you know also for Russia, it's a war of choice. It's not an existential war, uh, despite how they may frame it or whatever. Um, so all, that's why also we're seeing a lot of use of uh, unguided weapons. So the yeah the precision guided weapons which are available in smaller amounts would be saved for absolute emergencies to some extent because they are limited. Yeah, or for high value targets that they mm. deem sufficiently, let's say, sufficiently high value to, to take them out with guided weapons then they, they, for, for various reasons. And generally, how do Russian uh, precision strike capabilities compare to those of the US and NATO? Uh, so while Russia has been... Uh, extensively modernizing its armed forces, including the Russia, uh, including um, their air power capabilities. Uh, the gap in precision strike capabilities between the Russian aerospace forces and leading Western air forces, for example, you know, uh, of course, the U.S. Air Force and also the U.S. Navy and uh, uh, U.K., France, um, Israeli Air Force. You know, uh, it's uh, they they in many respects, you know, they're they're very large gaps. Uh, in particular, you know, compared to let's compare to the U.S. Air Force, the Russian Aerospace Force's ability to prosecute 
fixed hard and buried targets and mobile targets and moving targets, it's far more limited, especially if in a contested environment and or during night and adverse weather conditions. There are many reasons, just to name a few. Uh, one is the generally inferior target acquisition, targeting, and information exchange capabilities of Russian combat aircraft. Okay, uh, the Russian aerospace forces, they still operate a large number of uh, Soviet era platforms. Uh, many of these have received various upgrades. Uh, however, they still lack modern data links and sensor systems and can only employ a limited variety of guided weapons, in some cases only older types of guided weapons. Uh, okay, and uh, both non-upgraded and many of the upgraded platforms, they still lack glass cockpits. Uh, so when you take everything, you put it together, you know, these and other factors, they translate to markedly inferior situational awareness, higher crew workload and limited or very limited precision targeting capabilities. And of course, the VKS also operates a large number of uh, newer platforms that are equipped with more capable mission systems and avionics, uh, but their precision strike capabilities too are more limited than those of, uh, you know, US, NATO, fixed and rotary wing combat aircraft, especially the, especially the sensor systems, they're much less capable than uh, uh, Western built-in systems or targeting pods. And also, in terms of sensor fusion, again, there's nothing that comes close to the F-35, for example. Do not visit hushkit.net because you will be distracted. It's full of thousands of absolutely free, fascinating articles on the stranger side of aviation, interviews with pilots, discussions of crazy fighter types you've never heard of, do not go to hushkit.net because it will consume your life with titillating, entertaining, informative, deep dives into the world of aviation. It appears that few nations can develop um, first-rate targeting pods. Um, it seems like most nations will use American or Israeli built systems. Um, I, I, and I understand that uh, until recently, Russia had French built targeting pods. Is that right? And no, they, they didn't have them and they were never implemented. Uh, the Russia, there are, there are some Russian programs, but the latest images I've seen of them being tested are from 2017 to 2018. Their current status is unclear. It's unclear if there will be any export customers for them, uh, especially now. And it's unclear if the Russian aerospace forces will adopt them in, in, in any meaningful number in the future. What is the key technologies which are hard for Russia to make for targeting pods? Uh, I think uh, sensors is the main uh, main difficulty, high quality sensors. And uh, also... Um, you mentioned targeting capabilities. Would you be able to give a few examples of those? For example, if uh, we take the Suhoi Su-34, uh, which is, as I said, Russia's uh, most, uh, the operational tactical aviation's most capable air-to-surface platform. So uh, it's equipped with the Platan laser TV targeting system, right? 
you can see the retractable housing uh, located between the inlets just uh, behind the forward landing gear bay. So, uh, you know, compared to Western targeting pods, Platan provides more limited cover, lower hemisphere coverage, right? Information about Platan is quite scarce, but it's likely equipped with a low light level television device. It's not believed to have a forward looking infrared sensor. Uh, forward looking infrared sensors or FLIRs, they're a standard feature on advanced targeting pods because they offer superior night and adverse weather capability. And, uh, you know, Platan's functionality is inferior in other ways too. You know, for example, lower sensor resolution and the absence of a laser lead guidance capability. Uh, laser lead guidance, it greatly facilitates effective engagement of moving targets using laser guided weapons that lack the ability to compute the lead required to strike a target that is on the move on their own. And um, so this is just an example, you know, pertaining to the Su-34s uh electro-optical targeting system but there are numerous examples uh you know for example if you look at radar systems again you have the su-30 sm su-34 su-35s they're equipped with quite capable uh quite modern radar systems but again when you compare that to the most advanced um radar systems that you find on uh, western aircraft they're in many respects inferior and all the Russian aircraft, they uh, really, their precision strike capabilities are very, very limited. Yeah, so for example, the Su-24M, uh, yeah, it has a dated targeting navigation system and uh, it can only employ older types of laser and TV guided weapons and anti-radiation missiles. So, you know, practically speaking, TV guided weapons and laser guided weapons are only suitable for clear or limited adverse weather conditions. And on top of that, the TV guided bombs and missiles that the Su-24M can employ, they lack a night capability. And its uh, electro-optical targeting system also lacks uh, night capability. So that also means that the Su-24M cannot independently engage targets at night with laser guided weapons. And this is a huge limitation because uh, it's also unable to employ satellite aided bombs or missiles and because satellite aided weapons are day night and adverse weather capable. And uh, so basically, you know, it's uh, precision strike capabilities are, are very limited. And Russia has these medium and heavy bombers um, which appear very intimidating in their capabilities but um, are they actually useful for Russia in this campaign? Uh, I think so Russia the way they typically categorize bombers is they have uh, strategic bombers so the 295 MS and 2160 uh, then you have long-range bombers, which is the 222M3, and you have operational tactical bombers, which are the Su-24M and Su-34. So the 295 and 2160, in their conventional strike role, uh, they can strike stationary ground targets with known coordinates in a day-night and adverse weather conditions using the KH-555 and the more capable KH-101 long-range air-launched cruise missiles. Uh, 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 the the later can be employed by some 295 MSs and some, if not all, 2160s. 
And the 295, it's actually, technically, it's not a bomber, okay? It's a purely strategic missile carrier. It started off carrying only nuclear-armed air-launched cruise missiles and then uh, conventionally armed air-launched cruise missiles were also integrated. It cannot employ unguided bombs or anything else. It's purely a missile carrier. And uh, the 2160, it's not known to operationally employ any other weapons either at present. So given that, you know, especially early on in the campaign, many areas of Ukraine, Ukrainian airspace were contested, Ukraine fields uh, air defense system. So the ability of the 295 and 2160 to launch uh, long range cruise missiles from Russian airspace, uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is useful. Uh, but other than that, these bombers have no other use for the campaign because they're not stealthy. They lack modern systems. They lack modern data links, modern radar systems, modern uh, electro-optical targeting systems, modern self-protection systems. And uh, they, they're seemingly unable to employ any other weapons. So they are of no other use to the campaign. Has there been any surprises for you in terms of how Russian air power has been applied in this in this campaign? So I think the biggest surprise was uh, the apparent limited use of tactical fixed wing aircraft early on in the campaign. So we're talking, as I said before, maybe five, first five days or so following the opening waves uh, of attacks. Uh, the, and their activity later picked up considerably and now especially we're according to pentagon estimates um they're flying much more sorties than early on in the campaign um you know one explanation is uh, maybe the russians overestimated their own capabilities and underestimated the ukrainians you know they may have believed that their ground forces would quickly seize key objectives swiftly and they wouldn't need to make extensive use of operational tactical aviation uh, another possible reason is uh, is uh, that uh, they were simply afraid of suffering excessive losses early on in the campaign when Ukraine, you know, un- until they felt that they've degraded uh, Ukraine's air defense capability to an extent where they want to increase uh, the operations of their tactical fixed wing aircraft. So, and another possible reason is they were simply still unprepared uh, they got the order to to commence the attack and they were still unprepared for, for large-scale operations with their tactical fixed-wing aircraft. We strongly suggest that you go to unbound.com and pre-order your copy of the Hush Kit Books of Warplanes, Volumes 1 and 2, big, beautiful coffee table books that you want. Incredible artwork, analysis all of the gen and juice on the aeroplanes that are on the loose in your mind go to unbound.com and pre-order the hush kit book of warplanes volumes one and two um how is ukraine different from the syria campaign in 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 again in russian air power terms so firstly i think in terms of scope it's different, you know, uh, compared to Syria, Ukraine involves a much larger and more diverse target set. And so the likely, uh, the average number of uh, 
daily sorties being flown is also higher than in Syria. Um, according to Pentagon estimates, it was something like 200 plus. Now apparently it picked up to about 300 plus. So again, it, this is nowhere on the levels of uh, Desert Storm, for example, nowhere near, but but it's much more than, than in Syria. Uh, another difference is that the terrain in Ukraine is generally is different and generally more challenging for you know uh, target detection and identification, especially for Russian tactical fixed wing aircraft. You know I mentioned the example earlier of the Su-34 and uh, the you know uh, their target acquisition capabilities being more limited. So it's less of an issue for Russian UAVs and more modern attack helicopters, but still it's, it's more challenging than uh, um, in, in general than locating targets in Syria. And uh, weather conditions may prove to be generally less favorable in Syria than in Syria as well. That's an important factor, especially for the Russian Air Force. And uh, lastly, you know, uh, in in Syria, the Russians are fighting uh, were, were fighting against various opposition forces and ISIS, whereas here they're fighting a, a sovereign state that has an integrated air defense system and combat aircraft. Um, and which recent wars do you think will have influenced how Russian air power is applied? So I think first of all, Russia's own experience in uh, Georgia. Um, I think one thing is you see there are certain aircraft types that Russia does not appear to be employing in this war that they did employ during their war in Georgia because they didn't have alternatives available in, in sufficient numbers. One of those is the Su-24M. They are using, uh, they are known to be using the reconnaissance variant, but not the strike variant. And that makes sense because uh, the Su-24M was shot down during uh, the war with Georgia. And today, Russia has Su-34s in large numbers, and it's a much more capable aircraft that's meant to replace the Su-24M. So that makes sense. Another example is the Su-22M. Again, the Su-22M against ground targets, it can only drop unguided bombs. And like the Su-95MS and like the Su-160, it lacks uh, various modern systems. In particular, one thing that was, uh, uh, you know, lesson learned from the Georgian War was that the 222M's self-protection capabilities are are insufficient. Uh, it's vulnerable, uh, so we don't see those being employed yet as well. There's no indication that they're being employed. Uh, another lesson, though, that said, that said, um, we are seeing the Russians employ older other older aircraft, for example, even though they have more capable Su-25SM and Su-25SM3s, they're also using the older baseline Su-25s. And uh, the same is true for attack helicopters, even though they're using modern types like the Mi-28N, Mi-35N, Ka-52, they're still using older Mi-24Ps. Another important Russian lesson from the Russo-Georgian War is the importance of unmanned aerial vehicles. So during the 2008 war, Russia had only very limited UAV capabilities available. They had the, and they made very limited use of them. They had the Chila 1T UAV. It got terrible reviews from its uh, users. So I, I have here, for example, um, a, a VDV colonel whose uh, men employed the system in combat concluded that the effectiveness of the system is zero and that the VDV, the Russian Airborne Forces, do not need it. 
Okay. What, what, was, what was what was wrong with that? Uh, it's uh, he said that uh, the sensors were terrible and the performance was terrible. Uh, he says that uh, uh, it didn't allow us to identify or view a column of uh, armored vehicles. Like we could hardly locate five of our vehicles on, on the poor footage. And he also said it uh, it flew so low, you it seemed you could hit it with a slingshot and it growled like a armored vehicle. Right, okay. <laughs> okay this is his words. Yeah. There. yeah, yeah. So, so uh, basically obsolete system. And the Georgians, on the other hand, they had much more capable uh, Israeli systems. And so that that really, you know, I think drove in the lesson that that Russia needs more UAVs, and uh, they bought, they licensed, uh, assembled UAVs from Israel, the Searcher Two, which they called the Forpost, and then they started building uh, uh, their own Russified variant, and also working on much more capable systems now, and. Um, than before, but still, uh, you know, their UAV capabilities, especially their unmanned combat aerial capabilities, the operational capabilities, they're very, very limited. Um, you know, the Turkish Bayraktar TB2 uh, UKAV that Ukraine operates, it's in many respects much more capable than the than the Russian UAVs, you know, especially the, the quality of the EO targeting system. And so, um, as for the other aspects of the campaign, so what we saw in the beginning, those initial missile, missile aviation strikes against Ukraine, you know, they may appear as some kind of Russian attempt at executing something akin to, you know, Desert Storm, for example, yeah, or, or Allied Force. But in reality, it's very different. Uh, you know, the total number of uh, missiles that Russia is estimated to have launched during its uh opening attack it's uh it's very small so it's where it's not shock and awe and uh um very small for an operation of this scale yeah and uh they seem to have used went after a large number of targets and uh, as a result including area targets such as air bases and they were targeting very few points on, on these air bases. And in some cases you had miss, misses or duds or, or just targeting of, of, of areas of the air base that are not necessarily the most uh, important. For example, they appear to have targeted aircraft that are not operational. Whereas, you know, if you're trying to take out the adversary's uh, air force, you know, you want to be going after more high-value targets on on the air bases, such as uh, runways and uh, operational aircraft. That it helps explain why they failed to neutralize the Ukrainian air force on the ground. Um, and not only that, but they also failed to protect their forces from Ukrainian aircraft that that managed to take off and and uh, go after Russian targets and the Ukraine's. Uh, TB2 UCAV, which I mentioned earlier in particular, you know, those are proving uh, challenging. So to sum it up, uh, not only did Russia's offensive counter air capabilities, uh, offensive counter air efforts against ground targets yield mixed results, but also uh, their defensive counter air efforts and their offensive counter air efforts against air targets also, they did not 
prevent Ukrainian aircraft from attacking Russian forces on the ground. As we've discussed, many of the airframes have Soviet origins, the benefit of a, a legacy of hardware and development that was funded in Soviet times. What do you think happens in the long term as these airframes dwindle and retire? So um, we can look at combat aircraft. Let's look at the Russian Aerospace Forces Operational Tactical Aviation. Uh, actually, most of their uh, combat platforms are new. Yeah, or I mean, they're still in production. So the Su-34, now they're in building the modernized version, uh, the Su-35S, the Su-30SM, yeah, and the Su-24M, it's being... Uh, which is a Soviet era platform, it's being um, phased out. And then you still have the Su-25, which they're modernized, but yes, they don't, have a, they don't have a replacement, a modern replacement for this platform. So we're likely to see those in service for a long time. Russia still has a large number of them and they will probably keep modernizing them at a slow rate. Uh, as for army aviation, Russian Aerospace Forces Army Aviation, uh, so the MI-35M, MI-28N, and K-52, those are more, more modern platforms. I mean, the MI-35M, it's a heavy, heavily modernized MI-24, but these are also newly built aircraft. And um, they, Russians still have some older MI-24 variants in service, but again, they're slowly phasing them out and uh, replacing them with these more modern platforms. And uh, Russia's long-range aviation, this is where uh, right now all the operational platforms, yeah, these are all uh, Soviet-era platforms. Uh, now, they've recently, re recently the first newly built 2160M, or M2 as they call it also, uh, made its maiden flight. So this is a newly built machine. And uh, the Russians are planning to build 10 and maybe 50 or more in, in total eventually. So this is not enough, of course, to replace their whole bomber force. Uh, as for their uh, PAC-DA stealth bomber project, very little is known about it, and it's not clear how many numbers those will be built in. So they have some modernization programs for uh, their other bombers, you know, the 295. Uh, the 295, they're now working on the MSM var variant. So we're going to be seeing a mixture of, uh, in, you know, a, a, along the next decade, we're going to be seeing more older platforms phased out, but also we're going to be seeing um, more modernized older platforms uh, coming in and and still being used for, for a long time because there's simply not enough to, not enough new platforms or no like platforms that are specifically suitable to replace them. There was another element to where I was going with that question in mm -hmm. that, as you say, the, the Su-34s and Su-35s and Su-30s are new aircraft, um, but it, again, and also the, the K-52s and, and some other helicopters, they are newly produced or relatively newly produced, but at the same time, they benefited from Soviet-era funding in the initial development stage of, for a lot of them, power plants, aerodynamics, uh, and then in the initial versions of the weapon systems. And it seems that Russia will reach a point where it has expectations of itself of producing world-class aircraft and weapon systems, but doing so on a budget, which appears to be 
in terms of research and development, much smaller than China or the US. Um, I, I guess I was thinking when there comes to a point where they've, they've milked all they can from the Flanker series and they've milked all they can from the My24 series, will there come a point where they step down in what they're capable of doing because they've lost that benefit of Soviet legacy? Or do you think that's a, an unfair point? A step down, you mean, you mean like they will stop using those and go for newer platforms? I, I mean that they will have to accept that they will have to have a smaller amount of hardware, I guess, essentially, and that they, they will realize the difficulty. So with something like the Su-57, it appears that it's been quite a difficult program to fund. Yes, it's it's definitely going to be an issue in the more long more more long term future. In terms of numbers, it's going to be very difficult for them. But yes, for example, Su fifty sevens they only right now plan to build seventy six of them until until by two thousand twenty seven, uh, and then probably more. But yeah, to replace all these uh, other platforms one for one and to design new aircraft, this is going to be extremely difficult. And this applies for also for army aviation and for long range aviation, definitely. It's, it's going to be a, a major challenge, especially uh, given you know, all the economic sanctions, et cetera. And uh, you know, that remains to be seen also how that impacts the Russian economy and Russian capabilities in the long term. Um, do you think that perceived performance of the Russian armed forces in Ukraine has maybe made NATO countries more confident in their respective powers and um, technology that their militaries are operating? I, I think definitely, yes. I think definitely. Um, and uh, I, I, I think the important thing to keep in mind here is that uh, these are Russia is drawing lessons from this war? Which which of these lessons will be applied and how that remains to be seen? Uh, but overall, yes, the Russian bear is not ten foot tall. It's been heartbreaking to a lot of people around the world, as well as obviously people in Ukraine and obviously families of soldiers in 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 Russia as well. If you don't mind me saying, your your personal background sort of links you to this uh, event in a way. And I understand you have a sort of Ukrainian and Russian family, is that right? I have, uh, yeah, my family roots are actually from Ukraine, Moldova, well, where today is uh, Ukraine, Moldova and uh, and Belarus. And also some of the family lived in, in Russia. Uh, yes, and uh, for me, you know, to seeing the, the devastation, the destruction, the suffering, it's, uh, it's very difficult to watch, you know, it's on such a massive scale. It's absolutely heartbreaking, and I think the the deliberate targeting of uh, civilians and civilian targets by Russian forces this is uh, absolutely horrific. And and very sadly, this is I think what what many people expected to see, knowing you know uh, past Russian military operations. I think we all agree that was utterly illuminating. A huge thank you to Guy, and thanks for joining us today. We will be back with you soon. Spread the word, spread your wings, avoid the superstore, and I look forward to your invisible but appreciated presence on the next episode of What the Flying Fuck!